Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. March 7, 1985. At record stores across the country, the phones have been ringing all day. A new, hotly anticipated single has just hit the shelves. And everybody wants it. In New York and Los Angeles, copies of the record sell out within hours. One radio station manager in Minnesota says it's flying off the shelves like Cabbage Patch dolls. The song is an epic collaboration among 45 of the biggest superstars of the day. It sells millions of copies and tops the charts for weeks. There is a very good chance you've heard it. It's called We Are the World. It opens with a sort of tinkling bell sound and then a big dramatic gong. And then the first lyrics hit. Lionel Richie. There comes a time when we heed a certain call. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. But if you have, it's probably in your head right now. The song is like a tour of 1980s music. Part of the fun for listeners in those first days in 1985 was identifying each of the soloists. Like, oh, oh, that's Stevie Wonder. That's Paul Simon. Then Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan. The list goes on and on and on. And they all come together on that famous chorus. We are the world, we are the children. Those lyrics point to the occasion for this music mega event. We Are the World was raising money for charity, specifically for a devastating famine happening in Ethiopia and Sudan. It's the biggest attempt ever to bring celebrities together to do something like this. The song was a really big production. And we talked to the man who organized it. The biggest lesson I learned was it's easier to accomplish the impossible than the ordinary. If you're doing something that's historic, people jump in and want to be part of history. They want to help you accomplish it. I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today, we go behind the scenes on the making of this record-breaking hit. What did it take to get 45 superstars in a room to sing this song together? And what impact did that song actually have? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We Are the World brought together stars from all different genres. Rock, pop, R&B. And that was a big deal in the 80s. In the world we live in now, with streaming, artists can become big stars in their own little corner of the market. Billboard writer Gary Trust told us, the 1980s was more of a music monoculture. The number one song, whatever it was, was everywhere. The 80s was a time of superstardom, and artists were fighting for that top spot. We talked to a guy who was in the center of this world, Ken Cragen. He was a major talent manager in the 80s. He worked with tons of stars from Lionel Richie to Olivia Newton-John to the Bee Gees. And a big part of his job was taking crazy phone calls. When you're a manager, you're essentially dealing with one crisis after another. It could be Tricia Yearwood calling from her bus, and the bus is on fire, and she said, I know you wouldn't want me to leave the bus till the press gets here. And I said, get off the bus. She still went back for her boots. Cragen is fielding middle-of-the-night calls, putting out fires, metaphorically speaking. It's a high-flying life, and an exciting one. And then in 1984, something comes up in the news that sort of cuts through the noise. For Cragen and for other people in his world. In Ethiopia, seven million people are threatened by starvation. Thousands have already died. The famine caused by drought is the worst in living memory, and now the rains have failed again for the third year in succession. There's a famous report in October of 1984 on the BBC with video that shows the effects of hunger in Ethiopia really starkly. Our correspondent Michael Burke has been back to Coram after four months and he found the situation far worse. Dawn, and as the sun breaks through the piercing chill of night on the plain outside Coram, it lights up a biblical famine, now in the 20th century. These videos appear in primetime, which was unusual for the day. The majority of broadcast companies in the 80s felt that this kind of unsettling image was more late-night fare. But TV anchors insisted on showing it in both the U.S. and the U.K. And so for a lot of people in their audiences... This was the first time we saw anything quite like that on television, on general news. I saw it, everybody saw it, and it was very, very riveting and disturbing. There was a real crisis going on. This footage causes the glamorous Hollywood world of Ken Cragen to bump up against this very different world where a historic famine is unfolding. To understand what was happening in Ethiopia and Sudan, we talked to Alex DeWall. He studied the politics of the region for decades. The most powerful driving causes of the 1984-85 famine in Ethiopia and also in Sudan was bad politics. No question about that. DeWall said in the 80s, a lot of media reports focused on drought as the cause of the famine, including that BBC report. 
And he said there was some truth to that. Back in 1983 and 1984, across much of Africa, especially Ethiopia and Sudan, the rains failed. And the failure of the rains and the failure of the harvest came on the back of disastrous economic policies in both countries and, in the case of Ethiopia, a devastating war. A war that was waged using food as a weapon. Ethiopia was in the midst of a war that would last until 1991. Dewal and others have argued that in the course of fighting that war, the Ethiopian government caused the famine to get to the historic levels that it did. But that wasn't the story most people were hearing at the time. The main image that was pervaded by the media of the Western world was these are natural disasters. The culprit here isn't an overall shortage of food. The villain is the weather. It's maybe an easier version of the story to grab onto. And after the BBC report, people in the Western world did grab on. At the end of 1984, Irish singer and actor Bob Geldof organized a charity single in England called Do They Know It's Christmas? It was the precursor to We Are the World. It raised money for famine relief and was a big success. In the U.S., the singer Harry Belafonte saw what was happening with Do They Know It's Christmas. And he was like, you know what? I think African-American artists here in the U.S. should get together and do something like that. So he called someone who was in a position to help make that happen. When he called me, I said, Harry, we could do it even bigger and better. Look at the artists we have. When Belafonte called me, I had just finished 18 months with 48% of the top 10 records in America were my clients. Cragen drove to Lionel Richie's house to pitch the idea. Richie was like, I'm in, and I'll write the song. Then, Cragen called legendary producer Quincy Jones. Jones was in too. And now, they knew that they wanted to get one artist in particular. The undisputed king of pop, Michael Jackson. Jackson's legacy has changed over the years due to allegations of child sexual abuse. But in 1985, he's one of the biggest stars in the world. Jones calls Jackson, and he's immediately in. Plus, he wants to help write the song. We'd all seen these horrific pictures, so motivating people was not hard. When Belafonte called back two days later and said, have you thought about it? I said, we're rolling. He said, oh. <laughs> he said, okay, good. Though the original idea was to do this with just African-American artists, it quickly grew. Cragen said that at first, he wanted to keep it to 20 people or so. And he wasn't even sure he'd be able to get that many. Doing a charity event like this wasn't really that popular yet. But then, Cragen made a call to Bruce Springsteen's manager. And he called me and said, Bruce is in. Well, from the moment Bruce was in, he was the hottest rock star around. I never had to make another outgoing call. I had to literally turn people down. They ended up with 45 artists committed to work on the song. Cragen told us this was a result of a lot of people's work and collaboration. And Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie actually had to write the song. But... A week before this recording is supposed to happen, there was no music written. 
Jackson and Richie were working on it every night at Jackson's house. Richie told Cragen a story about it. Apparently, Michael Jackson had a pet snake. Lionel said we were sitting on the floor trying to work on the music, and here comes this snake, a live, huge boa constrictor, slivering towards me. Said I decided it was my time to go home. Uh, (laughs) But they didn't get anything ready for Quincy until two days before the recording session. Finally, they finish the demo and send it out to the artists. When the night of January 28th rolls around, they have a sign drawn up to put by the entrance. It becomes famous. It says, check your egos at the door. Which, of course, became the key phrase for that event. And people did that. They were blown away by all the other artists there. The recording is scheduled for the night of the American Music Awards, when everyone will be gathered in Los Angeles. It's past 10 p.m. The recording studios are still dark. But then the artists begin showing up. Limos arrive. The lot is buzzing with stars. The location has been kept a secret, but word, of course, gets out. So there's a crowd waiting outside the building to see all these celebrities. Paparazzi are snapping photos. And all of a sudden, a guy pushes his way through the crowd, and he's in cut-off gloves and leather jacket and the whole thing, and he comes up to me, and it's Bruce. I'd never met Bruce Springsteen. And he says, hey, man, I got a great parking place across the street on La Brea. <laughs> he had driven himself by himself there, no entourage. He, was, he parked across the street, and he walked through the crowd, and nobody realized. The recording is going to take all night. There's a studio and also a sound stage where people can hang out with ping pong tables, snacks, drinks, the works. And before they begin, for a brief moment, the buzz and glitz of the night is put on pause. Well, maybe to put you in the mood of the song you're about to sing, which hopefully will save millions of lives. It's a little jarring, actually. Bob Geldof stands up to remind everyone why they're there. The famine. And I think what's happening in Africa is a crime of historic proportions. Bob got up and painted this rather awful picture of what was going on there, and it was awful. On some of the camps, you see 15 bags of flour for 27,500 people. And it's that that we're here for. And so I think we were very, very cognizant of the importance of it. Geldof steps down, and the focus turns back to the music. Let's put it on the tape. One, two... And to this bizarre experience of having 45 stars together in a room. It was an amazing feeling to be there with all those stars. Realize that at that point, this kind of thing that had just been done in in England, but certainly in the U.S., nothing like this had ever been done before. So as a result, it was a very unique experience for these people. But some of them were quite intimidated. Kraken said a lot of these stars seem to be really nervous, even the biggest pop star of the day, Michael Jackson. Kraken told us that before the recording began, he was missing. Michael was nowhere to be found. And I went looking for him, and I literally found him in the bathroom, curled up on the counter, sort of almost in a, you know, with his knees up against his chest, sitting there on the counter, 
because it was so intimidating, and he's a very shy person. Jackson wasn't the only one who felt intimidated. Bob Dylan had never recorded, you know, in a group like this. He got up to do his solo part at one point late in the evening, early morning, really, and didn't sound like Bob at all. And we had a room full of people, all the other artists that were still there doing solos. Lionel cleared the studio. He, Quincy, and Stevie Wonder each sat in turn at the piano and did Bob Dylan. And they sang his part in his voice that they could mimic. And after the three of them did that, particularly Stevie, who just nailed it, Bob Dylan walked up and did Bob Dylan. (laughs) The recording goes all night. It takes 10 hours. They don't finish until after the sun comes up. It was such a momentous event. I think what no one realized is how big it would be. A few weeks later, on March 7th, the song hits the shelves. There's been a lot of hype. People know that this is coming. On the actual day, they line up to get their hands on the record. My office was a block from Tower Records in Los Angeles. And when it first came out that day, I went over there uh, and I would watch people walk out with 10 albums under their arm. We Are the World was also playing on the radio over and over again. It got huge airplay, and a month later, towards the end of March, beginning of April, a group of radio programmers got the idea to have every radio station everywhere, no matter what the format, play the song all over the world simultaneously. The LA Times reported that President Reagan requested the song be played on Air Force One, that hundreds of people sang it together on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. It was a rare moment of shared musical experience. This was back in the day when radio stations played their genre and their genre only. But We Are the World broke through that. And the song had so much star power behind it that it just had to be a number one hit. It shot to the top of the Billboard Hot 100 charts after only four weeks. It would go on to sell more than seven million copies. The head of a record company said to me, don't just put out a single, put out a record album and include songs that you can't get any other way. USA for Africa, the organization behind this, also put together a whole album of unreleased tracks by some of the artists who had participated in We Are the World. And then USA for Africa partnered with Bob Geldof's organization, Band-Aid, to put on Live Aid. That was a concert in the summer of 1985. An estimated 1.5 billion people either attended or watched it. That was about 40% of the global population at the time. All of this raising money for famine relief. It was certainly the biggest event of its kind. It gave us the wherewithal to make a real difference. USA for Africa reports that, to date, they have raised over $100 million. This kind of celebrity philanthropy was new. It had really never been seen before. And the organization did a thorough job making sure that the aid went to the right place. They partnered with local African organizations on the ground to make sure the food and supplies had a real impact. But remember... 
according to Alex DeWall and many others, the root causes of the famine in Ethiopia and Sudan were complicated. They were both environmental and political. So aid money from abroad helped, but it wasn't like it could solve the underlying problem. I asked Cragen how he thinks about that. What are the limits of this type of aid? I'm not sure what the limits on this kind of thing, other than the amount of dollars. We try to do the most with the least amount here. Cragen has seen the way that emergency aid funds can have an immediate life-saving impact. So he's a true believer in the power of humanitarian aid. And many people at the time felt the same way when they bought We Are the World records and attended the Live Aid concert. In fact, Alex DeWall told us that many consumers may have had a little too much optimism about what their money could accomplish. The people who are giving money to this cause uh, were not aware of the complications. They were literally a world away, and they were giving their money on a very naive assumption that if they gave money to charities, this problem of famine would be solved. And that wasn't the case, very sadly. This optimism can also have a darker dimension. It tends to reinforce a rather simplistic story. And the simplistic story is that helpless people are suffering in the middle of Africa, and we, uh, white Western people, can be their saviors. And this overlooks a very important point, which is that most of what they are doing to survive, they are doing themselves. The aid is only, as it were, the last piece in their efforts to survive. And it also overlooks the, the fact that they are invariably suffering because of their disadvantaged economic position or because of political oppression. Over the years, there have been many parodies and takeoffs of We Are the World, and they sometimes take on these issues. They've showed up on shows like 30 Rock, The Simpsons, SNL. There's one by a group called Africa for Norway that is a fake charity single trying to get Africans to donate radiators to help out all of the struggling cold people in Norway. They say, you know, frostbite kills. It's basically poking fun at this idea that people can swoop in and benevolently fix all the problems somewhere far away. But We Are the World definitely left its mark. It really was a seminal moment in celebrity humanitarianism. Humanitarian aid is a pretty dull business. Perhaps once in every couple of generations, something breaks through that barrier and reaches the wider public. And the Band-Aid Live Aid phenomenon was one of those historic moments at which ordinary people, young people especially, compelled their political leaders to take notice, to say, enough is enough. We won't accept this. Dewall said that in the past few decades, humanitarian aid has become more professionally organized and just a bigger deal in general. And that traces back to this era of We Are the World. Since then, there hasn't been another celebrity single quite like it. An attempt to remake the song in 2010 kind of fell flat. But people are still singing the original. In schools, in churches, in choirs. Cragen told us that the song still brings in royalties to this day. In 2019, it was $400,000. 
And USA for Africa still uses that money to help address hunger and poverty. And We Are the World, it remains one of those songs that will really get stuck in your head and stay there. In fact, that is happening to me right now. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.